My name is Patsy West. I'm an ethnohistorian and museum curator. I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and my family has lived within 20 miles of there where we homesteaded in 1888. For many years, Patsy has devoted her career to preserving the history of Florida's Native American population. Great-granddad was very close to the Miccosukee people on Little River. At that time, everybody knew them only as Seminoles because they'd been through the Seminole Wars and they really didn't know their pedigree. He and great-grandma invited their friends, mostly Bird Clan people and Panther Clan and Big Towns Clan, to all the events at the family property. So that was the focal point on Little River was my great-granddad's house. Patsy says most information regarding the Seminoles is wrong, so she's made it her mission to teach the public their real story. They generally start out with something like, uh, the Seminoles were creeks that were pushed into Florida during the Seminole Wars. And that's absolutely incorrect. So who were the Seminoles? Patsy has traced the word back to the 18th century. She says that's when Native Americans in Florida contracted epidemic diseases from the Spanish, which devastated their population. There may have been a few people left. We don't know how many. We don't have any statistics about that. Generally speaking, it was a void. But we do know that other tribes, Choctaw, Creek, Miccosukee, came into Florida, and the people that came in around 1740 were considered, quote-unquote, Seminoles. In the wake of this devastation, the Seminoles built remarkable communities that included both Native Americans and African Americans. I wanted to learn more about this diverse pairing, so I turned to Andrew Frank. He's one of the leading experts on the Seminoles. And I started by asking a simple question. What does the word Seminole mean? Traditionally, we've always described Seminole as a derivative of the Spanish word cimarron, which is kind of wild domesticated animal, mm. so wild cow. Seminoles historically have translated it somewhat differently. Uh, kind of those who camp at a distance or those who camp at distant fire. One's more poetic than the other. Right. Um, one would more be the version that enemies would give. You're the runaway. You're the wild person. But I think both ideas give an image of the people who are in Florida, these indigenous folks or folks who don't want connections with, say, creeks in Georgia, Alabama, Creek Indians. But they also don't want connections sometimes with each other. So we have these communities in Florida that some of them have real interaction with one another, but they they set their villages up at really quite a distance, even from each other. And mm-hmm. there's very little in the way of pan-Indian politics. There may be marriages and social ties and communal ties, but on a day-to-day or even monthly basis, these are really autonomous communities. Now, in the 19th century, the United States, as, as part of its effort to, you know, incorporate the Florida Territory within the territorial bounds of the country, part of that process actually includes using Seminole as a kind of blanket term to describe indigenous peoples uh, in the territory. And just give me some sense about what actually is a Seminole in the eyes of U.S. government officials. So a Seminole in the, in the eyes of the U.S. government is someone who is— I mean, I guess maybe this is where the word wild really comes from. They are out of the control of a government that is not in alliance with the United States. 
So okay. <laughs> there's this one gentleman named Nayamafla, an Indian leader, and he is widely seen as a Creek. He calls himself a Creek. And then at the start of the First Seminole War, he's asked to return a suspect for a murder who's in his villages. And he says, no, this is actually in, North, in southern Georgia. And the U.S. military comes in, they raise his village, and he moves into Florida. And the United States now calls him a Seminole. Um, and then lo and behold, when removal comes, he moves to the Creek Nation in what is now Oklahoma. And so for a long time, we, the, the U.S. calls them Seminoles as a means of saying, okay, these are Seminoles, and Seminoles aren't indigenous to Florida. Therefore, they have no right or sovereignty to that land. There's no one that we can actually treat with, and they are deserving of conquests. I mean, this is the language that James Gadsden uses, that the, the Seminoles should be treated with conquest the same way that they conquered the people who were there beforehand. Mm. Um, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that the— United States uses the phrase seminal to basically say that they are deserving of removal and deserving of no protection. Right. And do we have any sense at all from, from source material of the time what these indigenous communities, small and potentially atomized, what they thought of themselves or how they identified themselves? Well, they identify themselves with village. In terms of family, they identify themselves with clan, kind of these totems of normally named for animals, um, bear and deer and, uh, and tiger or panther. But they really are village-oriented. Um, so even in, say, the 1890s, long after the, the Seminole Wars, there are these five clusters of villages in Florida, and the Cow Creeks were very different than those folks who lived at, say, Big Cypress. And they would identify themselves, I'm a Cow Creek, um, I'm a Miccosukee from Big Cypress. Um, and it's really only a modern reality that they have found a way to really centralize. The big economic backdrop of all of these contests about village and personhood in the Florida Territory is, of course, the plantation economy of the 18th century. And it may surprise some folks to learn that it wasn't simply a case that people of African descent in their attempts to escape slavery, you know, fled north. They actually fled south into Florida. And how is it that these territories and these villages became part of the land that African-Americans sought to escape to? So the Underground Railroad, if you will, heading south really mm -hmm. is something that people don't pay attention to. But I think the, the first context, I would say, is that there are these maroon communities, independent communities of African-Americans who simply want to find freedom in the American South in various swamps and mountainous areas where if they can find ways where natural geography can protect them or shield them. So they exist in the Great Dismal Swamp and they exist in the Appalachian Mountains and they're often very small. Florida is slightly different in that a good chunk of Florida had been depopulated through the slave raids and through disease. And mm -hmm. so there are these areas where they can set up rather large villages that really run much the same way that we would say Seminole villages run. They are autonomous from one another. They will have trading ties. They may have social ties with their neighbors, but they can be out in the open because there are no enslavers nearby. The Spanish have no ability to get into the interior, and the later the English have no ability to get into the interior. We can say the same thing for the United States. Um, so these villages set up often in, in full sight of the world outside them, which provides a, kind of a unique story in the American South. And do we have any idea about how these villages responded with the arrival of African-descended people? I think they respond the same way they respond to the arrival of other indigenous people. So sometimes they are allowed to live on land nearby, and they are incorporated as daughter towns. Sometimes the villages are providing uh, symbolic tribute, kind of a percentage of whatever crops they grow. 
Sometimes there are marriages that connect elites within the communities. Sometimes they serve as advisors to one another. And sometimes they're really completely independent from one another. It runs the gamut. And normally we see real alliances take place when they are both being attacked by the same enemy. And so we can see a lot more, uh, say, coordination taking place during moments of war than in moments of peace. Hmm. And so as slave raiders come in, we, or the United States military comes in, we can see Native people and African Americans kind of behaving in concert with one another. The 19th century, if, if it's known at all in the Seminole story, is likely around the question of the Seminole Wars. Let's bear down here a little bit and just tell us what interests the U.S. government had in staging military campaigns against the Seminole in the 19th century? So the United States has really two really large ambitions when it comes to Seminoles. Uh, one is that Seminoles provide safe harbor, or the perception is they provide safe harbor for runaway slaves, which mm-hmm. makes the, the motives of white citizens support a war, at least white citizens in the American South support a war to prevent the runaway of slaves. But also the, the land that Seminoles occupy, especially for the First and Second Seminole Wars, are widely seen as this opportunity for the expansion of the Cotton South. The Seminoles in North Florida were farmers, and they farmed corn. Um, and so the idea of expanding slavery into North and Central Florida and turning Indian cornfields into cotton fields with unfree labor was, that's the dream. They, they refer to it as white gold. Florida is kind of this Caribbean hope that the climate was comparable, and if they can turn North Florida um, not into a better version of the Carolinas where many of the migrants come from, but even better would be if we can turn this into a Caribbean island where slave populations would be significantly higher than uh, white populations, but they can extract cotton at just an exorbitant rate. So as these military conflicts are sweeping up, they're, they're moving against villages and populations that have been going through this slow and steady process of incorporating African-descended peoples and, and having them intermarry with these indigenous groups. So how would we describe, if at all, what the impact was of the military campaigns on the African-Americans in these communities? And, and was there in any way a split along racial lines within these villages when the U.S. government showed up? The United States, from the very beginning of the, the Seminole Wars, they recognize that there are pre-existing divisions within Florida. So one general calls it a Negro, not an Indian war, right? This is Colonel Jessup. Um, So Jessup calls it that in part not to diminish kind of the Native American component of it all, but to kind of highlight the opportunities that the United States military had to divide and conquer. And so his grand plan, and it's pretty effective, was he offered – a version of freedom to escaped runaways who are in Florida. And he basically says, if you are willing to put your guns down, stop fighting, we'll provide passage with you to Indian country um, where you will be free. Now, that offer is made at the same time that thousands ultimately of Seminoles, they surrender as well. Um, Hmm. So it's not as if they're turning their backs on their allies, but lots of people are looking for opportunities to get out of a war zone it's romantic to imagine that everyone should have stayed and fought to the last man. Right. Um, but lots of lots of Native people are surrendering as well because the cost of fighting is really high. Hmm. So, but, but hundreds of Africans put their guns down and about 600 find their way on their way to Indian territory. And so that becomes a, a means that the United States really disrupts this coalescing process. 
And what happens to the seminal identity if such a thing is is kind of hard formed by the time you get to the 1830s or 40s as a result of these gambits on the part of U.S. military officials? The folks who are in Florida who are being called seminal increasingly acknowledge um, that they're fighting a common cause. Like, so one example would be during the when the United States first gets control over Florida, there's a treaty that they sign in 1823. And it's signed with, I think the quote is, the Indian tribes of Florida. The word Seminole is never used, and there's acknowledgement of a plurality. By the time these Seminoles or the Indians in Florida are signing treaties in the 1830s and 40s, they're referring to themselves as Seminoles, even if they acknowledge that that's kind of a a facade. Um, But there is this collective identity that starts to form, at least in terms of its practicality. How would you describe the way that Florida creates this very distinct moment in Native history, thinking specifically about Seminole peoples as largely being able to fight or push back against American military interests at multiple points over the course of the 19th century. Is there any way that the distinctiveness of Florida as a a legal space, as a simply geographic region, helps to account for the uniqueness of the Seminole experience there? Um, there are two major influences. One, the geographic topography of Florida is unique, especially the further south you go. But it's unique in a way that the land increasingly becomes less desirable to prospective planters, but also significantly harder to traverse. And so, right, even the names of some of the vegetation in Florida kind of says it all, right? The idea of going into sawgrass um, <laughs> right. is... It's amazing, Um, but it's also kind of the the thickets of either the Everglades or Payne's Prairie or the Big Cypress Swamp. The large American horses didn't go there nearly as well as the smaller ponies that the Seminoles used. The deep boats of the U.S. Navy were not quite equipped for the rapidly shallowing and disappearing waters of the interior. And so the United States tries to adapt some of its technology to fight this war, but their, their desire to go there was significantly less. Then you add alligators and mosquitoes and all sorts of animals that the typical U.S. soldier had no interest in dealing with. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is that um, when the Third Seminole War ends, there's a few hundred Seminoles left in Florida. And when the United States sends kind of a handful of kind of missions to find out whether they're willing to go west or to find out what their population is, they find a few hundred living in an area that if it weren't for Native Americans who lived there, welcoming them in and then walking them into their village, no one can get in there. So hmm. they always conclude things like, there aren't that many, they have no interest in going west, and man, would it be a lot of work to actually do it. So geography and politics all and, and economic motivation all combine to give them this, this space that most Native people don't have. On that same score, the geography and, and the politics, maybe just the remoteness of Florida, is that at base for why the Seminole story isn't more widely known than, say, the Sioux story or the Iroquois story in American history? That may be true. I think part of the reason why we don't tell the Seminole story is historically the Seminole story was not a glorious victory by the United States. The most notable moment in the Seminole Wars was the capture of Osceola. He was a seminal leader, not a tremendously significant leader, but a leader. And he's captured with a bunch of other Seminoles under kind of a white flag of diplomacy. And Mm. 
it becomes really controversial. It becomes a spark for the anti-slavery movement because here it is, the United States waging a war to expand slavery into Florida. And what does it do? It corrupts our military to break our own code of conduct. And he dies in prison. Like This is not a glorious moment in U.S. military history. And the cost of the wars were astronomical for its time. Lots of generals went down there and lost their reputations. But also, Florida doesn't fit in general in the U.S. story, in part because we as 21st century Americans have a hard time imagining Florida as really being the Confederacy or the South or the slaveholding mm -hmm. South, even though for a good chunk of it, it was. So Florida suffers in general in its inclusion in the American story. The other part of it is, so for Seminoles, when it comes to Native American history, they don't fit that model either. I teach a lot of courses in Native American history, and all the textbooks have these rather large kind of episodes in American history that are really important, allotments, red power. And Seminoles have, well, they weren't subject to allotment, and virtually none of their members were connected to red power. Um, and so they exist outside of that narrative as well. Patsy West is an ethno-historian and a museum curator. Andrew Frank is a history professor at Florida State University. He's also the author of Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. <laughs> 